It's good to be back, by the way. Um, I want to say that uh, being away for a couple Sundays was a nice change of pace, but being back is also very, very good. Makes my heart warm, and I want to thank Austin and Matt for both of you guys. Huh? They did a good job, and, uh, and yeah, that's the only way I can get away, is if somebody can step in here for me. So that was very, very, very much appreciated, and uh, yeah. How many times in the scripture do you see a case of someone getting sort of over their skis when it comes to what God is wanting to do? By the way, I'm getting an echo. Uh, something's echoing back at me. Is that the monitors maybe that are on or something? It's like, it's like talking on the phone. Do you ever get that where you talk on the phone and you hear yourself the other end and you can't, can't think that, well, something happened. Can you still hear me Okay. Sorry, just a technical difficulty kind of day. Anyway, so in, in the scripture, you have these times where people seem to be getting ahead of God, and you can think of all those examples from the Old Testament. What, what one from the Old Testament immediately snaps to mind when I say that? Is it Abraham? How many thought of Abraham? Yeah, you're getting ahead of God. God said, I'm going to give you a son. He promised him that. He knew it was going to happen, but years went by and nothing had happened. And then one day, Sarah comes along and says, here, take Hagar, my servant, and make her your concubine, and then she can give you a son in my name. And, and you know, Abraham listened to that and goes, well, yeah, that could be how God wants to answer it, so we'll just go with that. And they got Ishmael out of that and a whole, whole heap bunch of trouble that came from that because they got ahead of the Lord. It seems to me that there is a danger within the church that if we're not careful, there are times when we may push ahead and try to you know, have great dreams of doing great things when we haven't taken care of something that God wants to deal with in our midst be sort of before we get there. We want, to get, we want to make it happen sooner. We might say we are not keeping in step with the Spirit. How many have heard that phrase, to keep in step with the Spirit? How many know exactly what it means? <laughs> right? It's not one of those things that just, you, you, you could think a lot of things, couldn't you? But it, it comes from Galatians 5. And I'm going to bring that in in a moment. I'm not going to say a lot about it at this time, except some of the language there in Galatians 5, where you have the, 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 the flesh and the spirit waging war against one another. Paul there in verse 16 says, Walk by the spirit. In verse 25, he says, Live by the spirit. And then he says, Let us also keep in step with the spirit. At this moment, all I want you to see is that there is such a thing as keeping in step with the Spirit, and we're supposed to do it. So it might be good to know, to know what that's, that is all about. Consider the passage. You'll remember, I'm sure, from three weeks ago, what we were talking about at the time. We were talking about Stephen. Stephen was, I'm sorry, Philip. Philip was with Stephen, one of the seven. Stephen had been killed. Philip goes down to Samaria as, that, as there's that outbreak of persecution in Jerusalem. He goes to Samaria he proclaims the gospel, the Samaritans here, and many, well, it kind of indicates that the whole city turned and believed, and it was beautiful. You remember that? It was just something that you could celebrate. It looked problem-free, and I said at the time, I said, you can't break this thing into two halves. The first, the first part just goes like clockwork. Everything looks just as you'd want it to look in times of revival, but then I said, if when we get to the next part, we're going to see some hang-ups, some, some issues that they have to deal with. There are two roadblocks in the text that we're going to point out. Two roadblocks sort of that, that want to hold, would want to hold the church back from getting on with the work of the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Both of these roadblocks have to do with the Holy Spirit. 
And so we're going to look at these things and we're going to talk about them and how, how we need to deal with that. Here's the big idea today. For the sake of the gospel, we need to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. If we want to be effective, how many want to see grace, well, and every other church for that matter in, in Great Bend, be effective for the sake of the gospel? Yeah, you, we want to see the gospel have a foothold in Great Bend, not just a foothold, we, a beachhead. A, a, yeah, we want it to be conquered for Christ, it, 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 as it were, but we need to stay in step with the Spirit. And I will admit to you, if I heard a pastor going into a sermon saying this, my ears would perk up. I'd be like, no, this is not just a trick to get you to listen. I really would. I'd be like, where's he going with this? How many feel just a little uneasy? Like, where's he going with this? Got to stay in step with the Spirit. What is, what is he going to say? Is this going to get weird or something like that? Um, it's, go, it's all going to make perfect biblical sense as we go. Let's look at it. I said there were two roadblocks, so there's only two points of the sermon. And that's really, both of these are heart adjustments that we have to make in order to stay in step with this. And when I say we, I don't just mean me, we individually, we corporately together as a church, as the people of God. So the first roadblock is division. How many saw that one coming? Well, if, if you use the you version, you could have cheated and already been ahead of us there and you might have seen it. But division, and, and I'll make sense of this for you in a second here. We should love the unity of the Holy Spirit. And whenever I say, you know, we're supposed to love something of a spiritual nature, love always means treasuring it, seeing its worth, and then going after it, wanting it, working toward it. So we're going to love the unity of the Holy Spirit. So we got Philip here, right? Philip, one of the proto-deacons, one of the seven, along with Stephen, so forth, and he's gone down to Samaria. We find out later in the book of Acts that he's an evangelist. So he's not just a deacon, he's, he's an evangelist. And he goes to Samaria, which you'll recall was crossing one of those lines, the line I'm talking about is Acts chapter 1-8 where Jesus said, you're going to begin in Jerusalem, stay there, the Holy Spirit will come, you get power. Then you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So you recognize this is crossing one of those lines. How did the Jews feel about Samaritans? They did not have, they, they, they didn't jihad, if you know what I'm saying. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, jihad? I got a, one, per, two people. Yeah, it's, uh, I never heard it till I moved to southern Indiana, which is further south than most of Kentucky, if that gives you any idea of what I'm saying. And uh, I heard uh, there was a guy that had some very colorful expressions. He used to use that. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, on the wagons, you know, when you had a team of horses, you, G meant left and ha meant right or vice versa. I don't know. But if your team wasn't synced up, they didn't jihad. Well, the Jews and the Samaritans were too similar in one sense. They did not Jihad. The, the, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as muggles, if you're into sort of the Harry Potter world. They were half-blood, half not the real thing, not the real Jew, but then again, you know, not the real Gentile. They were just this mixed aberration, this abomination. And uh, the Samaritans looked at the Jews, and they thought pretty much the same thing back at you. Right? They, they did not jihad. And uh, there's this unexpected turn of events that takes place. Theologically, if, if you already knew good theology before you came to the Bible, which would be hard, you would go, hey, there's something out of order here, something not quite right. Let's look at this, verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not so unexpected. If, you're, if you've been tracking all along through the Gospels and you get to here, it's not unexpected that the apostles would have an interest in what happened at Samaria. Because after all, they were Christ's appointed apostles. They were his ambassadors. They were the ones who were overseeing this whole Acts 1-8 process of, of the gospel being spread. And so now they hear from you know, word of mouth that Philip has gone there and that he's preached. And so they need to go down there and they're, they're going to check it out. That's not really such a huge surprise. But the first surprise is that the Holy Spirit has not fallen on any of the Samaritans. How is that? What, what, you have to ask yourself, what is going on with that? First, you'd have to ask yourself, how did they know? How did they know the Holy Spirit hadn't come on any of them? And so one of the popular answers is because there was a, a good deal of times where you had speaking in tongues, that it could have been that, that it was the absence of, of that, uh, that expression that maybe tipped them off. It, it could have just been a lack of exuberance and joy. but We really don't know the why, but it had not yet happened. It says they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I know how that sounds. What does that sound like when, when he says, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? What do you hear there? You think, well, oh, so that's the problem. They only baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because Matthew 28 says we're supposed to baptize in the name of what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're like, he got it wrong, right? He just, he just left off the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that's probably what he got wrong. That is not what is being said here. Actually, all, all that Luke is really trying to tell us is that he'd been, Christ had been preached, they'd been baptized in his name, as they should be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit had not come in that baptism of the Spirit. So they'd been water baptized, but they hadn't been spirit baptized. Tracking with me? Okay, that makes sense to you. Uh, the apostles rectify the situation by rebaptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And the... No, they don't do that. See, I was trying to see if you were paying attention, trying to get you going one way and take you back the other. Um, no, that is not what they did. See, if that were the problem, like Philip, you got it wrong, buddy. How many times Philip's slow? Uh, it's the Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just the name of Jesus. If that had been the problem, they would have just rebaptized them, right? But that's not it. And you see some of these television preachers, well, they should have gone up there and like slain him in the spirit to give him the spirit, right? No, that's not what they do. They pr I love that. They pray for them, and they lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? The text tells us they did. How did they know it? I don't know. I don't know. But now they, they see that it happens. This roadblock we're talking about takes us by surprise. It doesn't fit the norm. And even when I say that there's a norm, it's hard to actually look at the book of Acts and say that there's a norm because things happen in kind of different orders through the book of Acts. At the preaching of Peter, after Pentecost, after they had received the Holy Spirit, he preaches to the crowd and he just makes them a simple promise. He says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no delay or anything of that nature. You think about when Ananias, not the same one of Sapphira fame, but the other Ananias goes to Saul 
after Saul's been blinded on the road to Damascus, and, and, and he just simply promises them that, you know, rise up and be baptized and receive the Spirit. There's no delay inherent there. Later, you'll get to Cornelius' house, where Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and what happens in the order there? Do you remember? Not that we, it, you know, we haven't gotten there collectively, but you've surely read it at some point. Do you know the order at that point? Peter preaches, they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit's baptism, then they're water baptized. So it's not really easy in the book of Acts to establish a norm. And if somebody comes to you and says, you've only what? You've only been baptized in water? Well, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You'll get people saying that, trying to take this and turn this into a, a structure that you have to follow. The truth of the matter is, if you look at the teaching sections of the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that all Christians... You all have been baptized by one Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit is the possession of every genuine believer in Christ. The book of Ephesians says this, look at, and it doesn't mention the baptism here, but certainly mentions the receiving of the Spirit. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what do you take from this? The normative Christian experience that we should expect is that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. And, and baptism shows that forth, and that's sort of how things ought to go. But this falls outside the norm. Why? Why? We have to ask ourselves that question. Why does this not track the way we would expect it to? I think a couple things are happening here. What, for one reason that it may have happened is the role of the apostles. Remember, the apostles are that foundational part of the church. That it is based, the, the church is based on the foundation, Paul says, of the apostles, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. You know that, that idea. Uh, Peter is, as it were, from an apostle standpoint, sort of using the keys of the kingdom, opening the gospel you know, to another region as Acts, Acts 1-8 works itself out. But I think the core of why it had not happened is that the Samaritans had to understand that they were not separate from the church of Jerusalem. They had to see that they were of the same church. They, that, 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 I mean, think about these people and how much at loggerheads they had been. It, it would be, if you could put it in modern terms, it would be very much like if you went to Israel today and the church was established today in Jerusalem among the Jewish people and then all at once it was proclaimed to the Palestinian people. Can you imagine that? What would happen? What would be the natural outcome if you had the Jews in Jerusalem having a church and then Philip goes down, he preaches, and they all get the whole package all in one. They, they, they get the gospel, they believe, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. What would have been the natural outcome of that? You would have had two churches, wouldn't you? They would have, seen no, they would have, they would have not gotten that they were part of the same thing. I believe, and this is what I'm going to try to prove to you real briefly here from Galatians 5, I believe that when we talk about keeping in step with the Spirit, the chief aspect of keeping in step with the Spirit, I'm not saying exclusively, but, but perhaps the most core idea of keeping in step with the Spirit is to, is to treasure and love and, and, and concern ourselves with the unity of the body 
of Christ. You say, well, are you going to base it all on this one passage? That's really kind of hard. I'm not sure that it's saying everything you want it. Look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in terms of opposing the works of the flesh. So you have the works of the flesh and you have the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 16, he starts the section saying, walk by the Spirit. And he contrasts that to the works of the flesh. And then he lists the works of the flesh. Now I want you to look at this and I want you to put on your thinking caps for just a minute and, and look at the works of the flesh and ask yourself how many of these would be things that would work against the unity of the body of Christ. In one sense, all of them do. But just, just look at those briefly and see. just add up the ones that seem to talk about division or the possibility of division. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those kind of group together, don't they? And then you've got idolatry and sorcery. Those sort of form a little bit of a subgroup. And then he says this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. I wasn't counting, but how many of these relate to those things which, which destroy the body of Christ? Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see... In a passage that's talking about the work of the Spirit, what the Spirit wants versus what the flesh wants, what does the Spirit want? He wants unity. He wants the, the bond of peace. He wants the unity of the body of Christ. He did not want the Samaritans to have the idea that, that they were not part of, of the church and the Jewish church at Jerusalem. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. All, so many of those contribute to the idea of dwelling together in love. He finishes off that section, Paul does, Galatians 5.25, I think we might have that, if we live by the Spirit, so we're living with Him, we're keeping in step with Him, let us also keep in step, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Are you with me? Do you, do you see what I'm seeing? Maybe, maybe, I, I'm not making this up. The, the first tangible, visible threat on the horizon for the church in Samaria was the possibility that the flesh would rule over what, they're, what they should have been doing and that they would have been divisive and, and pulled away and seen themselves as a, as a different group. Grace Community Church is here for what reason? Um, well, what we like to say is it's to draw people into an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, that is through the gospel. We, we are here for the sake of the gospel, but we realize we need to stay in step with the Spirit. We have not yet arrived, have we, to everything that we would desire to be in Christ. Am I the only one that feels that way about his own life? Do you ever feel like you fall just a little short of, of the maturity level that you thought you would be at? Do you, do you ever struggle against the flesh? When you read the works of the flesh and envy and boasting, all of those things, oh my. It just reads like the, the list of the things that, that, that I find within myself all the time. We need, it seems to me, to love that unity of the Spirit and love it enough that we're, that we're honest with ourselves and we look at our lives and we say, you know what, 
Spirit war- wars against the flesh, and my flesh is still the same old flesh. It, and if I don't keep watch over that, if I don't pray, if I don't, if I don't live in that grace of Christ and, and by, the, by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, I'll be right there in a moment. In a heartbeat, I'll be there. And what does that then do to this? What, what happens? The same thing that would have happened had the Holy Spirit not worked in the way he did. There would be division and there would be destruction. And the, the, the ultimate problem is that would short-circuit the gospel. I'm not saying that the gospel can't save under even the most extreme circumstances. It can, but if you want to talk about revival, if you want to talk about the gospel really making headway and gaining ground in the kingdom of God, we need the unity of the body. We need the unity. How many are with me on that? Yeah, we're, oh, we're unified. That's good. We've, half the battle, half the battle. Second roadblock that pops up is just a crass profaning of the Holy Spirit. A, that's the roadblock. It's, it is a crass profaning of the Holy Spirit. And, and our idea there is that we should hate any exploitation of the Holy Spirit. We should hate any exploitation. You, you could say prostitution. I almost went with the word prostitution there. I guess I was looking for something a little tamer than the word prostitute, but it's the same, it's the same basic concept. How many remember Simon? We're going to get to Simon now. Simon was a crackerjack magician. I just want to say something nice about Simon before we rip him to shreds. He was a good, good magician. You cannot, it said that he, he amazed him, he impressed all of them from great to small. In other words, the, the really smart people, the intellectuals, he, everybody thought he was something. And it wasn't like he just went through fly, you know, a fly-by-night tour, you know, a two-day you know, weekend. He, it said he, he did this for years, for, for a long time. So, he, I mean, he was a good, good magician to give him his due. Um, let's, let's pick up with old Simon. Verse 17, Peter and John lay hands on the people. They, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Again, text doesn't tell us how they know that, but they do. And Simon is watching, and he is seeing this, this taking place in front of his eyes. Remember, he, Simon's the only celebrity in the city uh, there in Samaria. At least the only one that we remember. Sure, there were probably some minor celebrities in, in Samaria. There might have been some that had a good TikTok video that gave them 15 seconds of fame. But if you're really talking about a guy who had staying power in his celebrity, it was Simon. He was like a cross between Elon Musk and Kim Kardashian, if you will. Like, like he had all the drive and the oomph and the, you know, whatever it is. Of, of Kim Kardashian, but he, he amazed everybody kind of like Elon Musk. That, that was the kind of person he was. Imagine that sort of person, somebody addicted to fame. We would just, just as soon use the word narcissist, coming to Christ, coming into that. I mean, he joins the bandwagon. He, he, it's hard for him not to. Because as, as good as he was as a magician, when Philip came in, he's, he's preaching the gospel, he's doing signs and wonders. It, it, there was this bandwagon effect where everybody is hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, and, and he, he, he joins them. He comes to faith, though, wanting to hang on to everything he had before he came to faith. In fact, we can argue as we look at the text here, he wanted his newfound faith in Christ to feed his desire for celebrity. 
Before I move on, can I just pause and ask you a question real quick? Do you think that ever happens today? Do you, do you think it is possible for somebody to look at Christianity, to look at faith, to look at the church, and see there a way of, of just gaining more attention as an attention-seeking thing? You think so? Maybe so. I'll let you hang on that for just a moment, but let's, let's move forward in the text. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give, this power, uh, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. If we're being charitable, which we're not going to be long-term, but if we're, for a moment we're going to be charitable, charitable to Simon, doesn't this seem like a rookie move? but one that you could kind of, well, he's, he's new at it. And after all, he's a magician. What does he know? He knows magic. What has he seen? It looks like magic to him. Wouldn't this be the, the most natural thing in the world for him to do exactly what he's doing? On the one hand, you could explain it that way. Imagine the best magician in Great Bend. Okay, you got that guy in your mind? <laughs> I don't know who, who, who the great, apparently it's, it's the, out the air show and, and the, the, the parachute guys are able to make themselves look like a UFO. But anyway, um, that's a long story. Um, but anyway, our, our great magician from Great Bend goes to Vegas and he sees David Copperfield perform. And David Copperfield, you know, is an amazing guy and he's, would he make the Statue of Liberty disappear? So imagine he go, somehow David Copperfield is able to make the Stratosphere Tower in Vegas disappear in front of this guy's eyes. What would he do? What would be the natural thing? What, you know, his jaw would drop and, and in his heart he'd think, I want that trick. I want, he'd go backstage. He's like, oh, David Copperfield, you're the best, you're the best. You know, hey, how, what would it cost? for me to buy that trick. How much? There's got to be a price. That's how it works, right? You buy it. Um, I want to go back and make the senior high-rise in Great Bend disappear and amaze all of the people of Great Bend. And that's really kind of, in one sense, what's happening here on one level. And we, on the one hand, would give him a break. But Peter, <laughs> no. Peter's giving no breaks here. Look what Peter says. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. He's basically wishing him dead. Although if Peter really wishes you dead, you die. So uh, the, we, we've seen that before, but, but it's, it's kind of close to that. Be, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter takes no prisoners. What is the sin? How many knew that, that there is a whole sin that was named after Simon? How would you like, like to be the guy who gets a sin named after him? Yeah, have you heard of simony? It sounds like a car waxing uh, method, it's not. Um, and I can guarantee you that no one in here has committed simony. I can almost guarantee that nobody has committed the sin of simony. Do you know what it is? Think about like uh, Florence, Italy. I, I'm sure Carl has probably taught about Florence, Italy back in the day during the Renaissance. Uh, there was the famous Medici family. And, uh, and they were such wheeler dealers, and there was a lot of power in church offices. So simony, as a sin, technically defined, is when you sell a church office for big money. Like, why would you do that? Well, because in certain places at certain times, if you were a bishop, you could control an awful lot of, of, of stuff and do, and do it for your own benefit. That's what simony is. But is that really the sin here? 
No, no. The sin is in Simon's whole heart disposition. He sees the Holy Spirit of God not as as the gracious gift of salvation that we receive at salvation that applies and takes all of the benefits and redemption of Christ and applies it to our hearts. He takes the Holy Spirit, he flips the universe upside down, and the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, becomes a cheap magician trick, you know, something that, some sleight of hand that you do at bars, like, hey, I bet, you, I, bet I can make this salt shaker stand on its corner, what do you, you bet me a drink? I mean, it, it, uh, that's what I say, exploiting, prostitute, profane, whatever word you want to use, that's what he's doing with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another illustration of, to, to get at how bad it is. Because it's easy to read this and go, eh, I don't see the big problem. I can thank the BBC for this illustration. I was watching this, this British detective here. I won't mention it because I don't want too much spoiler alert here. But in this, in this detective drama, there was a traveling circus and there was a magician guy. How about that? Huh? And he did this one amazing trick. Every, he was pretty me- mediocre in every other way, if you will, but he had this one trick that just absolutely wowed people. He had his son come up, his teenage son or adults and whatever, it come up and he put him in a booth and then you know, they would disappear, probably a trap door on the floor or whatever that might be. But then the thing was, is the moment he said Alakazam, in walked his son from the back door. It's like, well, yeah, there's no way. I mean, I can see a trap door. How did he get back there? Well, twins, right? But here's where it's, here to, to, make you, to give you some appreciation for this, according to the plot line of that episode, when he had twin sons born to him, he determined that the rest of their lives he would keep the one son in complete seclusion, never letting anyone know that that child even existed. How bad is that? Does that hit you in the gut? How could you use a child? to make something great of yourself just because you want to look like this great magician. How dare you, sir? How dare we do that with the Holy Spirit? How would, you know, Simon, Simon doesn't desire the Holy Spirit like, like a, a father who wants a child. He doesn't desire the beauty and the goodness and, and all of, of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants him to impress his friends. I love the offered solution here because it seems, if if you've ever tried to help somebody that's in real spiritual distress, it just kind of gets at the simplicity of, of the right response. Verse 22, Peter says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. That just jumps out at me. Does that hit you in a particular... You see... It's such a horrendous sin, as we've just pointed out. Wouldn't you need something more than just, well, repent? Repent and pray. Sometimes we just feel so inadequate when people come to us with problems. It's like, oh, man, anything that deep and that dark, man, we're going to have to drive out demons to take care of that one, aren't we? <laughs> we start thinking that way. Oh, we've got to do a power encounter. We've got to figure out, because this guy's really, really evil. Nobody could get that evil on their own. They'd obviously be dealing with demons. Or maybe... Maybe we would suggest, you know what, that you didn't get baptized in the right name to begin with. Let's try that thing or something like that. But, but the answer is repent. Repent and, and pray. Let's say you knew a pastor, God forbid, 
um, not using myself as an illustration here, but, but say you knew somebody went into the pastoral ministry thinking of what that could do for him. Let's say he used it to, to start hooking up with wives in the church that came in troubled and weighed down and bothered by their marriages, or, or he starts using it to just latch hold of all the money in the church's church, you know, bank account. What would you say about a person like that? Man, you're messed up. I mean, I thought I was a sinner, but gee, pastor, you are really, you are screwed up big time. I mean, I don't even know what we would say to you. How could you take the gift of God, you know, the ministry of the word of preaching that's such a high, and then you take that and you, and you, and you use it for, ah, oh, I don't know, I don't even know what we could say to you. And, and what does Peter say to him? Repent. Repent and pray. Repent and pray. Are we overstating the shipwreck of Simon's faith here? I don't think so. Look, look, look at what it says there. This, this, is, this is sort of the description after Peter tells him to repent. This sort of describes how Peter sees the situation. He says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, there's a lot of good stuff there to unpack. That, that sent, I mean, I could preach a sermon on that, unpacking it, but, but for the sake of this sermon and the time constraints, what is he saying? He's saying it, the problem's in his heart. And it is a heart that is just so bound up and twisted and messed up. It's like, dude, you, you are really, really screwed up. Your heart is so far, your, your heart is just so unregenerate that you need to repent and you need to pray. Do you think Simon was lost? How many think he was lost, lost person? I don't mean like he couldn't be saved. I meant at that moment, do you think he was lost? The interesting thing is that church history suggests that he was desperately lost. Church history, now this is not scripture, so it's not on that level of certainty, but church history would say that he became one of the worst heretics of that day, that he led people astray from that point on. He was like Balaam um, in, in that sense. I don't know. I, maybe, maybe church history is correct on that. It's certainly an anemic response. Look at, look at his response to Peter. He says, and tell me if this just sounds like a guy that's really repentant. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. He doesn't pray. We don't, it, it doesn't indicate that he repents. It just, it's like he throws it back at Peter and says, well, pray for me. Was he lost? Was this the first step toward repentance? I don't know. But here's the bigger question. What do our hearts want with the gospel? What do our hearts want with the gospel? What do our hearts want with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Is the church a place where by the Holy Spirit we are growing up into Christ, where we are being fashioned into His image, where, where the Spirit wars against the, my flesh and, 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 and God gains ground and God is glorified and, and, we, and this, this is something that we do together to, for, for the glory of God and to see souls saved. Is that what the church means to me or is it just a place that I can use is the gospel just something that, that, that I use for my, to feed my own flesh? The Holy Spirit of God is the gift of God 
that we receive in salvation, whereby the presence and the power and the reality and the work of Christ is being applied, has been applied. We're, we're, we're given salvation, but we're given all of the rest as well in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That work continues in us, that good work. That's what we're supposed to want Him for. What does He mean to us? If you feel convicted, Christian, what, what's the answer? We'll rebaptize you next week. We'll, we'll get it right. I'll even bring a Baptist in if I have to, to get it done right this time. No, no. Repent. Repent. Hear the word of God. See the grace of God. Even to, even to someone as messed up as this guy, Simon, the word is the same. You, you see the grace of the gospel. You see the grace of Jesus offered to you. You repent. You turn. You pray. And getting back to our first point, by him, we are to have that bond of unity. We're to seek that with our whole heart. When things have settled in in Samaria, the issue of the Holy Spirit gets resolved, as it were. Look at verse 25. This is where it caps off. They, this is Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So what's happened? So you had this, this beautiful outpouring through the gospel of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the issues with the Holy Spirit have been resolved and now the gospel takes off again. You see this once again, that, that propelling of the gospel outward, the kingdom of God is growing. That should encourage us. That's kind of like the carrot held out in this, isn't it? Like why should we really want this? Why should we really care? There's probably some people sitting here today going, man, I would have liked to have heard a sermon that was actually had some application for my life. Like, why can't... Yeah, the reason we should want to stay in step with the Spirit is so that we can see the gospel taking off. Amen? And we've all said we wanted that. I asked earlier, and everybody went, yes, yes. Okay, we, we let us stay in step with the Spirit. Let us love what the Spirit loves. Let us love the unity of the body of Christ. And if that means that we have to at times eat crow, own, own our mistakes, apologize, reconcile. That should be just our desire is to see that loving unity, that bond of unity, and, uh, and by all means hate any exploitation. If you're here and, and, and you do not know the Lord, I just want to hold that out to you. And, and don't be like Simon. Don't, we don't present the gospel, and I've heard the gospel presented that way. Sometimes it gets presented like, hey, Take Jesus and, and, and it's, it's, like, uh, it's like putting money in the bank and everything's going to be beautiful. And, it, and we try to feed the flesh by presenting the word of the Spirit. And, and, that's not, and that's not how it is. We offer to you Christ. We offer to you eternal life. We offer you a life that, that can be lived to the glory of God. And if that appeals to you, if salvation from sin and eternal destruction sounds like something you want, then what you need to do is repent and look to Jesus Christ and trust in Him. And you will receive not only salvation, but you will receive the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, you will be united with, uh, with fellow Christians in, in a bond of love. You'll have to You'll have to keep alert. You'll have to do battle with the flesh. It won't always be easy. Some of us are a little, hmm, I don't know what the word is. 
We've got corners. We've got, it's, it's not always easy to, to live in that bond of unity, but God will make that possible. Desire that. Desire what the Spirit alone can give. Receive Christ today and then stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, when we look at Simon, we might uh, recoil in horror at the thought of a life so close to the truth and yet a heart so far from really grasping the glory and the beauty, the majesty, the treasure that is the Holy Spirit to us. And, uh, and Lord, we just forgive us in any way, shape, or form where we have abused the bond of peace, where we have let the flesh rule in our, in our midst. It, it is easy, Lord, for us to allow the flesh to, to rear up and, and to become envious or divisive. Um, Lord, preserve us from, from that. Prevert, preserve your church from strife. And, uh, and let that Holy Spirit, your good Holy Spirit, fill us and move us toward love and that bond of peace. And help us, Lord, to just hate any way, shape, or form that we would exploit that. Lord, we, we live in submission to the Holy Spirit, and we want to stay in step with him. So help us in that, Lord. And by your Spirit, we pray right now today that you would cause your gospel to fall on receptive hearts that you have made receptive by that work of your spirit. And Lord, that, that, that Christ would be believed upon, received, and, uh, and that we would just be able to give you the glory for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.